The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today as we take a technical look at the market with Katie Stockton, founder and managing partner of Fairlead Strategies. Barron's Deputy Editor Ben Levison is on the line as well, and he'll be talking about some of the company's reporting earnings this week. The market was mixed today, but it's mostly up, which to me is a nice thing to see after last week's sell-off. Welcome, Katie and Ben. It's good to have you both back on Barron's Live. Thank you, Lauren. Thanks, Lauren. Good to be back. So, Katie, I thought we would start today with a discussion of the market's dreadful breath. Most of the year, most of this year, the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ have been driven by just a handful of stocks. There are mixed reviews about whether this sort of narrow participation in the rally bodes well or poorly for future returns. We'll get to that. But there's also a debate about whether the breath will improve as the year goes on, namely whether the rest of the index will start to get a bid as well. What do your indicators suggest about whether this rally is going to widen out? We've actually seen signs of life from equal weighted and also small cap weighted benchmarks. And that started in May. We saw the cumulative advanced decline line pick up its head and actually ultimately climb through resistance. And that came alongside breakouts with uh, the S&P 500 and also NASDAQ 100 having cleared resistance levels in mid-May. So I, I think the, the weak breath behind the market is somewhat old news at this point. And we have, of course, after those breakouts, seen very good upside follow through from the major indices, but also uh, the signs of life from the likes of the Russell 2000 index, which is small cap in its concentration, and even the Dow Industrials, which previously had lagged. They're right up against some resistance levels and do look poised to break out th- themselves. So that would be in following with what we've seen already from the heavyweight that we you know, sort of weighted indices and and. like the mega caps, you know, Apple and Tesla and what have you, they don't have that benefit of having those um, overweight positions or or, um, sort of constituents. And yet they are now showing inklings that they can actually not only break out on their charts, but also show relative performance against these larger cap benchmarks. So I guess a rally could resolve itself or, or this imbalance could resolve itself in one of two ways, either the large caps leading the market could become completely overvalued and or the smaller stocks and other stocks could begin to catch up. So that's that I like your thesis that everything else is going to start to catch up. It makes sense. And and it's kind of interesting. We had some news uh, just released in regards to the Nasdaq 100 and its weightings towards these mega caps. They're actually going to take what they call the magnificent seven to the top seven market cap weighted names in the benchmark and reduce their weightings. Uh, They have not made the official announcement of what those weightings will look like. I think that comes on July 14th. 
But that is already, I think, impacting the market today. We're inferring that the weakness in the mega caps that we're seeing today on Monday is a function of that news. And noting that the triple Q ETF, which represents the NASDAQ 100, is down nearly half a percent, whereas the equal weighted version of that, the triple QE, is up 1.3%. And in a way, that, that's a testament to the breadth shift that we've seen. We have a pretty good ratio of advancers to decliners, despite the weakness in the mega caps. And it just tells us that perhaps their position is less important than it was before. And it makes for certainly an easier tape to take advantage of because you don't have to just select those seven stocks in your portfolio. You can find momentum behind other areas like industrials and financials and more recently out of energy. And I think investors welcome that. Did the NASDAQ offer a rationale? I think it was just that the fact that it had gone to about a 55% weighting in these uh, concentrated equities. And it's it's to the point that you made of their outperformance and leadership in the, the first half of the year. That their size just got so, I guess, oversized, right, relative to the overall benchmark, such that I think the goal of the NASDAQ is probably to make it more reflective of the whole market as opposed to just those concentrated names. Or you could say it's like a portfolio manager kind of pairing a position when it gets to be too overweighted. That's right. That's right. But it, it, it should be a very interesting development to um, to watch and we'll see how it plays out. But I want to take a look at some of those mega caps from a technical perspective. Amazon and Tesla have broken out, as you say. Tell us what that means and what you see ahead for these stocks. So while we could see some consolidation here in these stocks, they have broken out above key resistance levels on their charts. We've seen Amazon, Amazon and Tesla most recently kind of join the party in terms of the breakouts. We had already long, long ago seen breakouts from the likes of Apple and Microsoft and Meta as well. Of course, NVIDIA <laughs> uh, preceded them all. But now that we have that spreading out to Amazon and Tesla, it just shows us the strength of the intermediate term momentum there and also the shift in long term momentum gauges. So it tells us that even if we see near term consolidation, that perhaps investors should either consider the next pullback as an entry for these mega caps that have broken out or simply hold on to their existing exposure and acknowledge that the pullback is something that follows a very strong up move and an up move that definitely improved the charts from a longer term perspective. We think that we would be considering positions that are long term uptrends, but also to have some opportunistic exposure when the market has positive intermediate term momentum is appropriate. And by that, we mean we would consider counter trend exposure, meaning stocks that had been trending lower for, in some cases, much of 2021, 2022, and now have counter trend moves underway. We just wouldn't want our entire portfolio to look like that. We always prefer as a, as technical analysts, stocks and securities that are in well-established long-term uptrends. The hard part is that they're harder to find after last year's bear market cycle. That's for sure. So you mentioned NVIDIA. Tell me about the technical stature of NVIDIA stock. Well, NVIDIA, actually alongside Apple, has broken out to a new all-time high. And we always say there's nothing bearish about new highs. <laughs> so. <laughs> 
to put that out there on the table. Uh, the breakout is a bullish long-term development. NVIDIA of all the mega caps is the only one that we have, however, that shows some signs of intraday, I'm sorry, intermediate term upside exhaustion, meaning that on our weekly bar charts, some of the overbought oversold metrics that we follow are flashing counter trend signals. These signals don't mean that we'll see a major reversal necessarily, but perhaps indicate that NVIDIA should see limited upside here in the coming weeks to months. So we, we feel that NVIDIA has the, the sort of expectations already built into it around the near-term fundamentals, and that there's probably better positions out there with more upside potential after its gap up in May. So we, we actually feel like it's probably a better selling opportunity here and would love to revisit NVIDIA into the first significant pullback following this major breakout. The breakout, you can drive something called a measured move projection. And that, what that means is we're taking the existing uptrend, which goes back to the 2018 low, and we're projecting it from the corrective low late last year. And it can get NVIDIA um, to sort of an objective close to 500 if you're using these extensions on that measured move. So perhaps that's something that becomes relevant in 2024. We don't feel like it's a reasonable near-term objective, uh, but that are that is the positive takeaway from that long-term breakout. I wanted to ask you also about Meta. Everyone around here is talking about threads, the Meta-owned Twitter rival. What's the technical posture of Meta platforms, which has had a terrific run this year? It really has. Yeah, it's just been such a grind higher for Meta. It, it feels like every day uh, that it takes a step back, it takes three steps forward, perhaps. It's just been a grind. And you can see that in all of the moving averages, including the 20-day moving average. And I, I emphasize that one because that's one of our primary gauges of the short-term momentum behind these steep kind of persistent uptrends. When the 20-day moving average flattens out, that's when we feel like we have a reason to perhaps take some profits if we owned Meta, yeah, but we're not there yet on Meta. The, the moving averages, including the 20-day, still point higher, and we've seen no reaction to any of the overbought readings that we have. So it still seems to have good upside here from a momentum perspective. There's minor resistance around 300, but it's really only minor fertile before you start uh, looking back at the 2021 highs. Uh, um, Katie, I, I was just wondering, I know this is a little bit out of what you do, but when, we, when you see a move like Meta um, and, and you're looking at the chart, do you, do you start thinking about what's fundamentally driving it at all? Um, and, and is there something in this case that has changed? Because it seems like at the towards uh, the last couple of months of last year, I mean, the, the sentiment on Meta was so terrible. Now it just seems like it's completely reversed. It's like a V bottom almost yeah. from late last year. It really was an abrupt reversal and such significant upside follow through that felt barely interrupted except for really a pullback in February. So I agree with you. It, it's a significant reversal and certainly an impressive one. The fundamental drivers, that, that's not my area of expertise. Uh, I care more about the supply and demand for the stock as opposed to the fundamentals of the company, but it's the fundamentals that are driving the trends over the long term. So uh, when I, I want to emphasize long term there, because there are certainly times at which these 
trends get disjointed from the company's fundamentals because of market influences. And Meta's downdraft last year, while very significant, and you saw underperformance versus the S&P 500, it was aligned with what we were seeing elsewhere. We had a sort of a broad-based downtrend. So it really was being influenced by the broader market sentiment to a great degree. And I would argue the same thing has happened this year, year to date, that Meta has just been a, a beneficiary of that sentiment shift that we saw late last year. And it continues to be that. And, you know, once it changes, we'll, we'll want to change with it. But for now, it seems to be working still. Interesting. And so um, I was also wondering, how is the U.S. situated relative to international markets right now? Well, we saw some signs of life from international equity markets versus the S&P 500. Uh, and that was something that interrupted a very long term downtrend in those ratios, meaning that we've seen over history, U.S. act as the leading benchmark globally. And when that changes, we are forced to look at those changes as counter trends. So we did see a counter trend phase of outperformance to us that was meaningful from both developed globals and also emerging markets. And yet the, the pullbacks there underway, especially looking at China versus the U.S., we think those pullbacks will soon give way to another up move, another phase of outperformance. And that's going to hinge on whether the market can retain this positive sentiment environment. So sentiment, as you can imagine, is logging as, as bullish uh, with this momentum behind the major indices. And that bullish sentiment is something that can ultimately benefit markets outside of the U.S., so we see the pullback, especially in emerging markets versus U.S., as something that should give way to another up move in phase of outperformance. But I think it'll hinge in part on a weaker dollar emerging. So we have had the dollar index range bound for now several months. And if that range resolves lower, that will be a tailwind there. Thanks so much, Katie, for this overview. A lot to chew on there. I want to turn next to earnings season. Second quarter results are about to start pouring in later this week with the big banks. So, Ben, what is the Wall Street view on earnings overall for the quarter? Give us well, a big picture, then we'll look at the individual companies. Sure. I mean, it's it's going to be another one of those quarters where earnings, you know, at least compared to the previous year, are not going to be great. Um, we're expected to see uh, overall earnings drop 6.4% year over year. A lot of that has been driven by the energy sector, though. If you take out energy, uh, year over year earnings are only going to drop 0.7%. Uh, so that's a pretty big difference there. Um, but what we can expect to see are a lot of earnings beats. Um, we've had only 18 companies report so far, um, but uh, more than three quarters are, um, are beat their numbers. And that's uh, above not only the long-term average, which is at 66.4%, um, but also the average of the prior four quarters, which has been 73.4. So you have about uh, four and a half points, uh, uh, percentage points better uh, so far. And it's only eight companies, so it's 18 companies. So it's a small sample size. Um, but, uh, you know, so far it's setting up to be a case of, uh, you know, the bar has been lowered and the companies are jumping over it. Um, the big thing that the market is going to be wrestling with is just the fact that it has gone up so much and almost the entire gain this year, I think actually the entire gain this year has just been driven by multiple expansion um, because earnings are um, you know, earnings have been revised lower. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, reading some uh, from Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson and, and his outlook, and he's 
he's pretty bearish. He doesn't think the second quarter results are actually going to mean much uh, either way for bulls or bears. He thinks what is going to matter is going to be what companies say, um, because he thinks the market, this rally that it's had in these uh, this higher PE is a reflection of this optimism that we're going to get better earnings in the second half of the year. And if companies don't start giving guidance that suggests that's true, you could have a pullback uh, in the market. So I think it's going to be a pretty important earnings season. And as, and as always, I mean, I think this is always the case. The guidance is really what's going to be in focus. Mm -hmm. Especially because people are so confused about the outlook right now. They really are. I mean, it's been uh, so strange just to see uh, first uh, everyone come into the year so bearish, um, just and myself included, expecting uh, you know earnings to to drop, which they have. Um, but the market has been bouncing uh, because of that. And now that we've gotten this bounce, I think the confusion is still there: is uh, can the market keep heading higher, or um, will there be uh, an earnings-driven pullback um, if uh, these numbers don't come through? And I was even thinking about the economic confusion. Are we headed for a recession? When will it arrive? What if it doesn't, et cetera? Et cetera. Yeah, et cetera, especially et cetera. Let's look at the big banks. Friday's their day. We'll hear from J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, and Citi. Of the three, J.P. Morgan stock has done the best this year. It's up about 8%. You may recall that the company bought the remains at First Republic earlier this year. What is J.P. Morgan likely to tell us when it reports results? Well, before we get to JP Morgan, I just want to point out uh, what one analyst was citing about the big banks in general. Um, sure. This was from Evercore's John Pencari. Um, and I thought it was a great list because he was talking about the mounting headwinds for the banking sector. And he had rising funding costs, moderating balance sheet growth, limited fee and expense offsets to that, credit softening, capital returns will slow. Then he went on to add that loan growth is going to cool. There's going to be less supply and uh, less demand of it for it. And um, so that's going to hurt uh, net interest uh, income. Uh, you also have the markets related business. Mortgage banking are going to remain weak. You're going to have a few, you don't have a lot of room to cut expenses and credit card credit trends in general are going to continue to weaken. That's both auto and uh, credit card losses are going to continue to rise. You could have the problems in commercial real estate. Um, so there does is, he see anything positive here? Well, well he does. Yes. Um, <laughs> if, if you don't mind, I'm going to start with uh, with Wells Fargo because sure. that's that's his favorite stock. And what he likes there is, you know, he calls this an uncertain backdrop, which all that stuff there makes it seem almost like he's fairly certain. But uh, he does, he likes Wells Fargo, particularly because it has uh, what he calls regulatory wood to chop. It has had these consent orders that it's been under, but they're nearing a potential end to those. Um, and and if you start seeing some good news on that front, there's a lot of self-help here for, for Wells Fargo. Um, and so, you know, it's one where you're actually supposed to see earnings growth, um, it's supposed to report profit of $1.17 versus 74 cents um, last year. And, you know, you, you combine that kind of growth with um, some of the, uh, with uh, some good news on that regulatory front, and you could see some upside there. The stock has gained 3.1% this year and is up about 10% over the last three months. Well, I'm thinking upside exhaustion from Katie and regulatory wood to chop from <laughs> from this analyst. We, we yeah, well, that, chopping wood is, is tiring too, isn't it? Um, <laughs> it's all exhausting. Okay, that's it's good though that yeah. that he sees some something positive there. What about J.P. Morgan and City? 
Well, so for JP Morgan, um, you know, it has this consumer division that is doing very, very well. Um, and that, that could rise, you know, 50% from last year's second quarter, the, the sales in that division. That could help offset the weakness uh, in there. And I think it also benefits, these, as you pointed out, you know, it, it took over First Republic and it, it, it is still perceived as the just the, the, the big bank to rule all big banks. You know, it doesn't have um, some of the, the issues of, you know, Bank of America has stumbled a little bit with its uh, um, just based on the interest exposure it has. Um, and, you know, it, it seems like JP Morgan has avoided many of those big problems. And I, I think that if it can report numbers as good as they're supposed to be, it's uh, expected to report a profit of $3.96. Uh, that would be up from $2.76. Um, it could do uh, pretty well. Um, the, the one thing I do worry about with it is it has gained 14% over the past uh, mm -hmm. three months. Um, but some of that is a, a bounce back from the the, uh, the the problems during the first uh, quarter of the year um, when you know we, we had these bank failures, and so the stock is actually up just eight point three percent this year. And so there there could be more upside there if uh, the company actually um, reports the good news. Sounds good. How about a few words on City? Well, City is still the one that it, I I have the hardest time figuring out. You know, it's unlike the other two, it's going to see earnings drop uh, to a dollar thirty-seven uh, versus two dollars and nineteen cents the year before. Part of that is because City is shrinking; it's trying to exit these international businesses, and that is, I, I think, you know, we're still it, this bank is the a work in progress, and still I think the cheapest of all the big banks, um, but it's also the one that has the most work to do, and I don't think that bull case yet of um, of it being able to shed what it needs to shed and focus on what's working has kind of come through yet. And so I think there's a little bit of a show me story there. Okay. I want to ask Katie for a technical read on the KBE, that's the Spider Bank ETF. How does it look to you? Yeah, we have seen again some signs of life from the financial sector. In fact, we even featured the regional bank ETF or KRE in our morning note to investors. And we did that because we have some signs of downside exhaustion there that have finally manifested themselves in an uptick in short-term momentum. KBE does have a short-term momentum buy signal, and that happens after it held right around its flattish 50-day moving average. Now, it's not as compelling as something that is trending higher yet, so it would be in that category of counter-trend types of opportunities. But with the indicators having turned at least short-term, I think there's potential for an upside reaction from earnings. It, it, they're in a better position, I would say, to react positively to their reports versus if they were strongly overbought coming into them. So they're in, in a position, I think, to even outperform on the back of that. And that's something that could help the market weather any weakness from the large cap tech stocks that seem to be pulling back right now. Mm -hmm. Okay, I want to stick with financials for one more moment and then get your read on BlackRock's quarterly results. The company has reined in its discussion of ESG as befits our politically charged times, but it isn't reining in its business in any way. Give us a snapshot and an update. 
Well, uh, BlackRock's expected to report a profit of $8.45. That'd be up from $7.36 last year. Um, And and I think what has at least one analyst excited is uh, what's happening over in the bond market. So KBW upgraded the stock to outperform today. And it's not because of what it sees uh, for this quarter, because it actually thinks that their flows haven't been great um, during the second quarter. Um, But they do think with yields higher that BlackRock Rock's going to be a big beneficiary. Um, you know, it has this huge uh, fixed income management business, and these high yields make that a, a better business. Um, but it also means that uh, you're also seeing the shift to um, index funds, even in uh, fixed income. And as that continues to grow, they're going to get more share. And they think this is a great time to pick up the stock, which really hasn't done much recently. Um, it has uh, gained just 6% over the past three months. It's down 1.3% on the year. So they actually think that, uh, that this is a pretty good time to, to go ahead and get uh, and pick up BlackRock shares ahead of earnings. That's interesting. We'll come back to that offline. Um, let's talk for a moment about United Health. It took a tumble earlier this month when the company disclosed that costs are rising due to a surge in surgeries. Remember all those non-essential procedures that were put off during COVID. What does this mean for the quarter and what does it mean for the company's outlook? Well, I guess for the quarter, at least, it means that hopefully all the bad news is in the stock. Um, I I think what's worrisome, and at least uh, some of the analysts are calling this out, is that, you know, it has the company has other issues as well. And it's not just um, not just uh, UNH, but others in the the same line of business. There's a uh, a, an investigation um, that uh, Stat Plus did their publication into the the way that PBMs uh, may have been paying companies, uh, for, uh, you know, under the table. It sounds like a little bit. Um, and what what's that going to mean for uh, the PBM investigations? Um, there's also um, some, um, you know, we have these uh, weight loss drugs, and it's going to be interesting to see how that impacts things as well. Um, and so, you know, there has been, you know, there's a, a little bit of of worry hanging over these stocks. I think for me, the biggest thing has just been. And, you know, United Health did so well um, in 2022 um, when nothing did well and did well in 2021 as well. And you've really seen it uh, stall out. Um, and it was already weak um, even before this news about the uh, the surgeries came out. And I, I think it's just hard to see what it's going to be able to say that's going to get investors excited. So I think there's some caution that uh, um, should, you know, uh, heading into this earnings season, despite what uh, they're, they're already this announcement that they had about the, uh, the uh, selective surgery, elective surgeries. So Katie, I want to do a lightning round looking at a couple of different ETFs and, and asset classes. We'll start with healthcare since we been talking about United Health. What does the healthcare index look like to you? Well, I guess there are many, but let's say major pharma stocks. Of course. I mean, the pharma stocks tend to lean more defensive and they also tend to be the heavyweights in the healthcare sector. So because of that, the XLV ETF as one example of a benchmark there has really underperformed, underperformed year to date and also recently with upside follow through from the major indices. If you look at the chart of XLV in absolute terms, it really is more sideways. It's uh, more of a neutral setup, a very flat 200 day moving average. And that's been the case for 
now about a year. Uh, it's hard to make a, a case for adding exposure, just given the fact that it lacks any positive technical catalysts. But you could also say that some of these names are, are quite oversold as they go into their earnings reports. And like the financials that had also underperformed, it means they could see an oversold bounce. So for those folks that are holding the likes of a UNH, they might want to just wait for that better selling opportunity given its oversold status, even though it has certainly lost long-term upside momentum. All right, let's move on to other sorts of assets. How about gold? We have a question from a listener. Uh, Harris wants to know your view of gold and Tom wants to know your outlook for oil prices. So we'll start with gold, then we'll move to oil. Of course, for gold, we've seen a pretty significant corrective phase at that brought it right into important support of 19.05 per ounce. And this is where we're now seeing some signs of downside exhaustion. We're looking for the uptrend that was launched late last year to resume, given the oversold condition, not just from a short term, but also intermediate term perspective. And then gold would be positioned for a, a retest of final resistance, which is quite strong, three times tested unsuccessfully at 2063 per ounce. It needs a breakout above that level to really suggest that the secular bull trend is keeping hold. And that's something we'll be watching. If we see a breakdown below the support level, despite indications to the contrary, well, that would be a big setback that we think we should react to because the secondary support for gold is below 1800. But as it stands, the probabilities do favor the upside move. Uh, when we look at crude oil, we're looking using the same metrics as we are for gold. And we've seen what was a very persistent range for a couple months below the 50-day moving average give way finally to a minor breakout above it. And the implications of that breakout are for a test of the 200-day moving average, which is above $77 per barrel. The 200-day moving average is where crude oil prices stalled after their up move off the March low. And so it's a significant level above which we could start talking about something a little bit more you know, uh, sustainable in terms of a duration for a counter trend move. There have been some signs of life in the, the equities. If you look at the ETF OIH for one, it's an oil services sector ETF. That broke out last Friday, last week, above some minor resistance on its chart after having undergone, like crude oil, sort of a corrective phase. So at least short term, they seem to have some upside. There is a big overhang of resistance, though, for crude oil, even beyond the 200-day moving average, though. So I think right now we can only view it as a short-term move. Here I ask you about Bitcoin. It's fine. It's fair game completely. I still think that technical analysis is the best way to evaluate some of the cryptocurrencies out there, at least the ones that have enough liquidity um, and don't have a very gappy bar chart. Looking at Bitcoin, which of course is really the market leader, we've seen consolidation ensue after a short-term breakout. The resistance is quite strong based on our cloud model, for those of you that track uh, the cloud model, it, it's really very good for commodities and currencies, and it's at 31850 for Bitcoin. So that's our, our big hurdle. We've already been sort of on, on top of this base breakout and intermediate term up move, but it, 
that resistance level, if it's surmounted, then we could get something a bit more sustained out of Bitcoin, we think. So that's the level we're watching here near term. Our indicators at present are neutral. So we would wait to see that breakout before you know getting positioned for it. Okay. There are people interested and I'm glad I asked. So we have a number of listener questions I wanted to get to today. Gary asks, is there a price level on the S&P 500 on the downside that if breached on a weekly closing basis would make you more concerned about the durability of this rally? Yeah, I mean, we always have support and resistance levels that we're referencing, and and we obviously don't want to see the S&P 500 come back below its breakout point. Uh, the breakout point, we can call it, we can really simply use the February high at this point, which is about 41.95, because that aligns with other support levels from things like our daily cloud model. And so we would feel uncomfortable with the move back below that level. Um, but even I'd say more importantly in our work, we, we watch the indicators, uh, overbought, oversold measures, momentum gauges, for any signs of upside exhaustion. So ideally, before we see some kind of breakdown, we would see some deterioration or sell signals essentially from these market uh, sort of gauges, um, which we're looking at more on the weekly bar charts. There's obviously been already a short-term loss of momentum, but it's not impacting our intermediate term gauges yet. So we don't feel like it's major cause for concern here. Okay, Um, Steve, wanted to know your thoughts on the second half of the year. Will the S&P 500 continue to shoot higher or will there be a pullback first before it can move up again? The breakout that we saw in May yielded a measured move objective of about 45.10. So our sense has been that there's upside to that level in the near term and that it would be a natural place for a significant retracement or pullback to occur. We don't have a crystal ball to know how we're going to look at at year end, but I would guess that we'll see a, some kind of major corrective phase ensue yet again towards the end of the summer, perhaps even aligned with the seasonal weakness that we tend to see from the market in September and or October uh, before some kind of year end stabilization. So uh, we, we don't expect a major breakdown, but we do think that this year and going forward are more likely to be overall less less identified as a trending year, like a strong uptrend, more identified as a trading range type of environment. And we say that because from a very long-term perspective, if we look at the monthly bar charts, our indicators there have largely flattened out and they are mixed. We have improved long-term momentum, but we also have a long-term overbought reading that presents a challenge for the likes of the S&P 500. And by the way, this is something that would apply to even international equity indices. They all seem to have this posture. It it makes it less likely for new highs to be logged, at least this year. Okay, John has a question. He'd like to get your comments on natural gas. Well, natural gas has been intriguing to me as, as a bit of a turnaround story. We've seen natural gas futures carve out what appears to be a rounded basing phase after a very, very steep down move from late 22 to sort of the second quarter of this year. And with that, we've seen a momentum improve, not just short and intermediate term, but also long term. 
And uh, we'll see if that can yield a, a bigger relief rally. Um, it's, it's not a low risk position if you're long natural gas, because it is, of course, still a downtrend. And yet, when you look at where it's trading, and then when, when you look at where the resistance is, there seems to be a pretty a favorable risk reward profile right now for natural gas counter trend exposure. Okay, thanks for asking that. And thanks for answering it. Um, Bill wants to know what sectors will outperform in the second half of the year. What's your what's your best guess on that? Based yeah, on I, I want to know too. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? Uh, yeah. So so right now with our rotational work, we have identified just outperformance from technology, communication services, and industrials as the primary sources right now. We also have a favorable rotation for consumer discretionary, and that's on a six-month basis. So it, it partly represents what we've already seen from the last few months, but the trajectories are still favorable. So we're essentially honoring those uptrends in relative strength behind those sectors. Our ETF, which is the fairly tactical sector ETF, has positions currently in communication services, technology, and industrials. And we expect those to continue to outperform. Once we or see some kind of big corrective phase from the major indices, naturally, we'd expect that to break up at least temporarily favoring defensive sectors that have really lagged this year. I mean, we, we can look at the relative performance of consumer staples or healthcare, as mentioned earlier, uh, utilities as, as just really being under pressure and sort of unloved. So they'll have their moment, at least, when the, the S&P 500 corrects. But overall, for the next few months, we would sort of assume that the existing leadership will continue to be the best source of our performance. Okay, I have a question for Ben. Um, was about M2 from Martin. That's money supply. To what extent do you anticipate M2 will affect market performance over the next six months? You know, it's a great question, um, partially because you know we've seen this decline in M2 uh, pretty much over this uh, over much of this year, and it hasn't impacted the market at all. Um, and and that kind of goes against uh, everything I thought I knew. Um, that if we were seeing it drop, that, uh, you know, there should be uh, um, some reaction in the market, uh, at least or to the downside. But uh, what I think is going on is just that, you know, with M2 de declining, you know, perhaps it means that uh, inflation uh, will decline too. And if there's, uh, you know, inflation gets under control, we could just resume, uh, uh, you know, normal economy. Um, and and so for now, I, I'm saying, I would guess that, you know, we'll keep it, something to keep an eye on, but it's not something to worry about. Comforting. Let's talk about inflation for a moment, Ben, because we're going to get the CPI report on Wednesday for June and the PPI report for June on Thursday. The Fed is going to be watching these numbers. Everybody's going to be watching them. What's the expectation on Wall Street? Um, well, for CPI, um, headline CPI, it's supposed to drop to 3.1%. That'd be down from 4%. Core is stickier. Um, it's, uh, it's supposed to drop to 5%. Uh, that'd be down from 5.3%. So still heading in the right direction, but still well above uh, where the Fed would like it to be. Uh, PPI is much uh, more it's under control. Um, yeah, core uh, should drop to 2.6% from 2.8%. Um, and uh, the headline is uh, supposed to drop to 0.4% from one 
1.1. Um, so, uh, you know, pretty, you know, the numbers there that uh, don't look worrisome at all. Um, I think, the, you know, for for the market, um, so much rides on this number. You know, we had that ADP number that scared everyone last week, a little bit of a rebound with the actual uh, jobs number, the payrolls number that came out Friday, and a lot rides on the CPI. Um, if core CPI can come in um, weaker than expected, I think that's going to be uh, good news for the market. And actually, uh, Fundstrat's Tom Lee um, is, is betting on that. He, he put out a call today to buy the S&P 500. He calls it a short-term tactical buy call, his first of the year. He, doesn't, he says he doesn't like to do these very often, um, but he expects the index to the S&P 500 to be able to rally 100 points in the next week um, and to reach about 4,500. Um, and that would be on um, this, uh, on the CPI, which he expects to, supposed to come in at 0.3% gain on a month-over-month basis. He thinks it'll come in um, at 0.25 or lower month over month. And that would be enough to send the market up to that 4,500 level. So uh, he, he's pretty optimistic. Of course, if we get that higher reading, um, you know, then probably the opposite can happen. But it seems like the trend is still the market's friend uh, right now, which is uh, downwards in CPI, both on the core and the headline level. Jay Powell would be happy with that. Katie, I have a question. Is it possible to apply technical analysis to charts of things like CPI? Or is it irrelevant in that case? No, I, I think anything that has a reliable price trend, um, it, I, you know, that's certainly fair game. We, we've at times applied technical analysis, things like the DeMarc indicators to macro data, almost just out of curiosity, right, to see if it's indicating something is overstretched to the upside or to the downside. But at this point, we use it more just anecdotally. I've never really done any studies on uh, the, the sort of reliability, uh, but it's certainly worth playing around with, right? And, and judging to see if there is a reaction to overbought indications and things of that nature. But uh, at a very minimum to apply moving averages certainly seems like fair game to me. <laughs> okay, I think we're gonna call it a day today. We've covered a lot of ground and I wanna thank you both. Of course, Lauren. Good thank to you also up. to our listeners. Great questions today, we really appreciate it. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, please join Barron's senior writer, Nick Jasinski. He'll be speaking with Jack Ablin, chief investment officer at Crescent Capital, as they discuss the most attractive opportunities in stocks, bonds, and private assets today. Thanks again, everyone. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.